Please take your Bibles now and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. I'll read verses 1 through 14, although our text is verse, verses 11 through 14. This is the word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the work of the Holy Spirit in inspiring this word. We pray that as we consider it now, that that same spirit would open our minds and our hearts to receive that word and to respond in faith and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Your conscience is a very valuable aspect of the way God has made you. It's an activity by which you evaluate yourself in the light of what the Bible calls the works of the law written in your heart. It helps you distinguish between right and wrong. And when you do something wrong, it can make you very, very uncomfortable, even miserable, until you repent of that wrong and take it before the Lord for forgiveness. But sometimes conscience doesn't work the way it should. Sometimes our conscience is too dull. Living as sinners in a sinful world can do that. We become so accustomed to the corruption of this world that we begin to be inured to its effects. We can watch shows on television 
that we probably would have been very much bothered by a decade or so ago. We play video games or read books that turn sex and violence into entertainment, and the desire to be entertained overwhelms the offense of the subject matter. We know this shouldn't be so, and yet often our consciences are deadened. We speak of them being deadened. The Bible actually uses a much more graphic term. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, speaks about people whose consciences are seared as with a hot iron. The scar tissue builds up, and we don't feel anything any longer. Because of that, a seemingly clear conscience doesn't necessarily mean that everything is all right between us and God. The Apostle tells the Corinthian church, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. If that's our problem, a dull or a seared conscience, then what we need to do is to immerse ourselves in the word of God, hearing the preaching of the word, studying the word, doing that hopefully in context with other believers, in order that our consciences might be sharpened as the spirit takes the word and uses it in our lives. On the other hand, sometimes our consciences are, are misdirected. Uh, many people would say too harsh, but I think that's not a good way of looking at it. They're misdirected. They misunderstand what God requires of us. And because of that, we hold ourselves accountable for things for which God isn't holding us accountable. Uh, the thing that happens perhaps most commonly along these lines is when a godly parent parent or parents have raised the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, they've done all that one could have hoped them to do in terms of teaching their children from the word of God, and yet the child goes astray and turns his or her back on the gospel. And we've all known parents, and maybe some of us have been parents like that at times, who have carried a burden of guilt because of that, where the guilt really was not the parent's guilt, but rather the guilt of the child who turned away from the instruction they had received. Sometimes, however, our consciences do what they're supposed to do. Uh, they bother us because we really have sinned against the holy God. We've done things that we know God didn't want us to do, or we've left undone things we knew he wanted us to do, and we feel weighed down. Although we know what the Bible says about God's forgiveness, we feel afraid that somehow this time God can't forgive us. We feel like we can't let go of it ourselves. We want to keep beating ourselves over the thing we've done. And therefore, we really feel no freedom when we come into the presence of God. Prayer can be a difficult thing to do because you're in the presence of someone you know you've offended. And that's never a good feeling. You go about doing the things that you know the Bible tells you to do, but sometimes they become almost a way of trying to make up to God for your shortcomings in the past. Maybe if I'm just a little bit better Christian now, maybe that'll make it easier for God to forgive me for the things that I've done. We acknowledge that we're sinners. And we sometimes feel that very deeply. But the question is then, how can sinners like us have a clean conscience in the presence of a holy God? 
not just the deceptive cleanness of a dull conscience, but a conscience that really is clean, that has been washed clean of the stain of sin, a conscience that enables us to rejoice in God's presence rather than feeling uncomfortable and fearful there. Well, our text tonight, verses 11 through 14, has the writer of the Hebrews telling us how. It's not by our own doing, not by the dead works that he speaks of in verse 14. It's not by the outward religious ceremonies of the old covenant that he speaks about in the previous verses. But it is through faith in the work of our great priest, Jesus Christ. It's because God has provided in Christ a priest who can do for us everything that is needed in order for us to have a clean conscience. In the first place, our priest provides an effective cleansing. And we know that because of two things we know. We know what the Bible tells us about who he is and what the Bible tells us about what he has done. He is the one who is the perfect offerer, the perfect priest who carries out the work that is needed in order for us to be welcomed into the presence of God. Uh, he is fully man. More than 2,000 years ago, the unimaginable happened. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took to himself a human nature, a true human nature. He became both God and man, two distinct natures in one person. One of the points that the writer to the Hebrews makes that flows from that is the fact that he can sympathize with us on our needs. Uh, back in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 15, he told us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Because of that, two verses later he can say this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This high priest whom the Lord has given us, this high priest is one who understands our needs, who can sympathize with us because he has lived here on this earth. He has a genuine human nature. He's been tempted in all points like as we, the Bible says, yet without sin. And when we draw near to him, we are drawing near to that sympathetic person. This high priest is not sitting there waiting to hit us over the head. He's not sitting there waiting to judge us for the things we've done wrong. He is indeed our sympathetic high priest. Yet, if all we could say about him is that he was a man, even a perfect and sympathetic man, that doesn't give much comfort to our guilty consciences. We still know ourselves to be sinners. We know ourselves to have broken God's law. But our writer tells us more. A pure and holy man himself, no matter how good he is, if he's just a man, can't pay the price for your sins and for my sins. But we're told that he is also fully God. When he took to himself a human nature, he didn't cease to be fully God. His godhood was not changed. He's the same here in chapter 9 that he was back in chapter 1 when the writer to the Hebrews said that he is the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, 
who upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is this one who is both God and man, who is the priest we need, one to whom we can come, knowing that he's sympathetic, he has a nature like ours, he understands us, and knowing that the work that he does as priest, he does as the perfect God-man. In our text here we read that through the eternal spirit he offered himself without blemish to God. Now it's certainly possible to take this, the phrase there about the eternal spirit, uh, to take that as speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit in sustaining the human nature of Christ as Christ went through his high priestly work. However, I think it's better with Voss and others to see it as a reference to the eternal spiritual character of Christ himself. A reflection, therefore, on the union of the divine and the, the human in this person who is our Redeemer. Because he is fully God and fully man, he is the perfect one to offer a sacrifice for our sins. One of the points the writer makes a number of times earlier in the book is that the problem, or one of the problems with the earthly priests of Old Testament Israel was that they had their own sins to deal with. Uh, because they had their own sins to deal with, they couldn't really effectively serve as the kind of priests that sinners need to come into God's presence on their behalf. But not only does our writer tell us that this priest is able to do an effective work as priest because uh, of his, his nature, he's also the perfect offering. He's not only the perfect offerer, he's the perfect offering. He is unblemished. The whole Old Testament system, as you recall, requires the use of animals that by their physical perfection reflected the, the spiritual perfection that was going to be necessary of an effective priest. But we're told that Jesus is the one who comes, who is able to be the unblemished offering as well as the unblemished offerer. He was without guilt, without sin. And he enters the holy place, we're told, on the basis of his own shed blood. Verse 12 there, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This perfect priest offers the perfect sacrifice. And because he does so as the one who is God as well as man, and the one whose life is infinitely worth, worth because, is of infinite worth because he is God as well as man, what he's able to accomplish for us is described here as an eternal redemption. So our writer at the end of our text can say, how much more, how much more than what was the case with the, the ceremonial cleansings that took place in the Old Testament, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. His life was forfeited in our place. The one who was the perfect substitute for us offered himself for our sins. And therefore he has gained for us what our writer calls eternal redemption. That's not encouraging as we think about our sins that needed to be cleansed from our consciences. I don't know what would be. So Jesus, our priest, 
provides a, a totally effective cleansing. And it's also, our writer tells us, a radical cleansing. It goes right to the root of the problem. It goes to the very depths of our being. This in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices. They had value, spiritual value, for the worshipers who came in faith, but only because of the relationship to the final sacrifice who would come, Christ himself. In and of themselves, they had no value to do anything other than to remove the ceremonial uncleanness of the offerer. But Christ comes with a sacrifice that is able, we're told here, to cleanse the conscience. That word conscience is interesting in the way, it, it doesn't appear in the Old Testament. There's maybe one case where the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word for conscience here. It's a word that Paul is very fond of, and he uses it a number of times. Uh, but uh, the Old Testament, I think, if you were to try to say, okay, where is conscience located in the Old Testament, it would be within the broader concept of heart. The Old Testament uses the, the, the word heart to describe the deepest recesses of our being. Conscience is a narrower term, but it gets at the same issue here in our text. The cleansing that is offered to us because of Christ's effective sacrifice is a cleansing that penetrates the very deepest recesses of our being. It washes us clean where we need to be washed clean. We're given a clean, a clear conscience. Nothing is left untouched by that work that Jesus does. We dare not deny that cleansing that is offered to us by refusing to accept God's own words about it. You know, think of the way John speaks about forgiveness in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are unwilling to repent of our sins and confess them to the Lord, that promise is not for us. But if we come to Christ in faith, if we come confessing our sins, God has staked his own faithfulness and justice on his commitment to wash us clean of our sins. Don't take lightly that commitment that God makes. If you really have trusted in Christ, if you've really confessed your sins to him, then know that that forgiveness that he offers is yours. God has staked his own faithfulness and justice on it. There is something else in our text, though, that we should look at for just a minute. And that's the fact that Jesus, our priest, provides a fruitful cleansing. A cleansing that actually accomplishes something in terms of our going forward, in terms of the way we live our lives as those who are to be fruit-bearing Christians. He delivers us from dead works, we're told, in verse 14. And that's the way the Bible looks at the things that we do apart from Christ. All our attempts to make up for our sins and failures, all the ways we try to be better persons, they're dead because if they're apart from Christ, then ultimately they're coming from a dead heart. Uh, they're dead because they're useless. They don't accomplish what needs to be accomplished in our lives. And they're dead because if we rely on them, the ultimate result is death. But that's not the case for you who are trusting in Christ as your Savior. 
the works that we're called to do are works that we're called to do in Christ. They're works that are fruitful because of his work in and through us. So the way the writer puts it here in verse 14 is that Jesus frees us from these dead works in order that we may live, that we may serve the living God. Because of Christ's work, you who trust in him are free to serve the living God. Your past sins have been washed away. The sins you committed trying to serve him are also covered by the blood of Christ. And you can approach your service of the Lord then with a freedom and a joy that is impossible for those who don't know Christ. When you come into the presence of, of your Lord, you come knowing that you've been washed clean by him. He's not holding a grudge against you. He's not going to say, well, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll help you along in this work that I've called you to do a little bit now, but uh, let's see, you're on probation. Be careful. No, you're washed clean of your sins. You can approach the work that God gives you to do in his kingdom with the confidence that the one who called you to do it loves you and will empower you to do what he calls you to do. And you'll do the things that you've been called to do in the service of Christ, not with a slavish fear, not with a nagging feeling that you're not doing enough, but rather with a joy-filled thankfulness because of what Christ has done for you. Do you approach the work that you do here in, in Trinity Church that way? Do you look at it as not a chore, but a privilege, a delight, a way in which you can show your gratitude to the one who loved you so much that he gave his life for you, that he shed his blood, that he goes before his father on the basis of that work that he did 2,000 years ago and prays for you. That's the position we're in if we're trusting in Christ as our Savior. We can approach the labors of our daily lives in full confidence that we're doing them in the presence of and by the power of one who loves us and has loved us for all eternity. So what is your conscience saying? Is it insensitive to sin in your life? Then immerse yourself in the word of God. Sit under the preaching of the word as you do. Talk with your brothers and sisters in Christ about how the word applies to different situations in your life. Seek from the Lord a more sensitive conscience. Is your conscience troubling you about things that it shouldn't trouble you about? Well, again, the only way you're going to know whether you've got a right take on those things is by going to the scriptures. That's where we find what God expects of us. And again, you can do that best in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. The scriptures are the only safe guide to our consciences. And often God uses our brothers and sisters to help us understand them better. But don't burden yourself with a false guilt, a guilt that God doesn't play on, place on you. However, if you are troubled by things that you really have done wrong, things that by commission or omission are sins against the holy God. The scriptures lay before us the path that we're to take. 
we confess our sins to God and we're appropriate to those whom we've wronged, we turn from our sins by God's grace. We tell him we're trusting in the sacrifice of Christ as the inexhaustible fountain of the cleansing that we need. We claim again the promises of the word that God completely cleanse, cleanses the heart, the conscience of all those who belong to Jesus. And then we get on with living a life of joyful thankfulness because we have a God who has loved us that much and welcomed us into his family. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we acknowledge that so often we fail to take seriously the richness of the promises that you make in your word. We act at times as if they're not quite meant for us, that somehow our situation is a bit different. But Lord, they are meant for us, and they're meant for all who trust in Christ. We pray that you would fill our lives with a joy in doing the things you lay before us to do for the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray that we might find our chiefest delight in coming into your presence and knowing your love extended to us in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would cause each of us to grow in our confidence that the promises that you make in your word really are true and you will keep them forever. Hear us, we pray, as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.